0: Like many Americans, I enjoy the Star Wars movies. I have great memories of watching the original ones, the best ones, with my family, including one marathon with my cousins when we were driving back from Arizona in an RV and just watched them all straight through. I've enjoyed the newer ones as well, flaws and all. And I've also enjoyed some of the spin-offs, such as The Mandalorian. Now, I had not heard of a Mandalorian before this show came about. And if you are like that as well, this show follows a character who is, you guessed it, a Mandalorian. He's a warrior. He's a bounty hunter. He wears full body armor and a helmet at all times. And there are other Mandalorians in the show near him who do the same. So as soon as as you watch this show, you start to hear the key Mandalorian phrase, This is the way. Yeah, some of you know that even if you haven't seen the show. This is the way. The way is the ancient code of those from Mandalore. Not removing your helmet in the presence of others. This is the way. Hiding your headquarters to preserve your civilization. This is the way. Caring for foundlings. This is the way. This is what it means to be Mandalorian. Walk this way and you'll be faithful to the creed. Well, that seems pretty clear until you get to season two. And then our Mandalorian, with his innocent faith in the way, gets rescued by other Mandalorians and then scandalized when they remove their helmet in his presence. This is not the way. And suddenly we learn there's more than one understanding of what it means to be Mandalorian. Our hero has no category for Mandalorians who do not follow the way. And the newcomers think our hero is crazy for following an ancient and outdated creed. Which way is the way? Right now in our culture, we too are experiencing a clash between ways all over the place. Ways of being American, ways of interacting with other cultures and nations, ways of navigating gender and sexuality, ways of addressing injustice, and yes, even ways of being Christian. Clashing understandings of how Christians are to live out our faith in the world here and now. Which is the way? In our gospel passage for today, we see a similar clash between ways, understandings of what it means to follow Jesus. Peter says, this way. Jesus says, this way. And he gets very clear. For once, the way of Jesus is the way of the cross. There is no other way to follow him. And if it's not the way of the cross, it's not the way of Jesus. This morning, we're going to walk through this passage and look at what the gospel of Mark teaches us about the way of Jesus. If you're a note taker or um, struggle with maybe uh, hearing versus seeing, I just want you to know this is a little bit of a more reflective and less structured sermon this morning. So if, you're, if you need something to do just to keep track, I suggest in your notes, put on half of the page, the way, and the other half, not the way. And either in scripture, what you hear from me, just kind of keep track, okay? Way, not the way. All right, let's look at Mark. You might remember that in Mark, this chapter is a turning point in the story. In the first half of the book, Jesus has been traveling around Galilee, preaching about the kingdom, healing, casting out demons, and the crowds and disciples love this part of the Jesus way. In chapter eight, Jesus begins to travel toward Jerusalem, preaching less kingdom and more cross, performing fewer miracles, giving more instruction about what it means to follow him. And the disciples waffle, as usual, between awe and cluelessness. Right before where our passage begins, Peter has literally just confessed, Jesus is the Messiah. You know this story, the big, who do you say I am? You're the Messiah. In Mark, Jesus doesn't even give Peter a pat on the back for that. He just tells him, don't tell anybody. And today, we see why. Jesus knows that he is the Messiah, Peter's confession is true, (laughs) but in the words of the Princess Bride, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. (laughs) When Peter calls Jesus Messiah, which is the same word as Christ, means anointed one, Peter has something very specific in mind. He is looking for a ruler like David, an anointed king who will take up the sword and fight for the freedom of God's people, destroy the enemies of God's people, bring about the peace and flourishing of the kingdom of God in the land. Victory, a winner, that's the Messiah. That's who I wanna put my something in. What's that phrase, sorry. I wanna put my marbles in that basket. (laughs) Someone has to start it, right? Well, Jesus doesn't call himself Messiah, when he picks up this thread, he calls himself the Son of Man, referencing some of these Old Testament passages like Daniel 7. Jesus says not just, well, these things might happen or these things will happen, but these things must happen. In Greek, the word is, it is necessary. It's necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things, not just the cross, but many things. It is necessary for the Son of Man to be rejected by every group of religious authorities. That word rejected implies that all these folks took a close look at Jesus' claims and then deliberately rejected them. It is necessary for the Son of Man to be killed. It is necessary for the Son of Man to rise on the third day. All of this is not optional. It is necessary for my mission, says Jesus. Peter is scandalized. He pulls Jesus aside, maybe to correct him privately so Jesus can save face. Jesus, this is not the way. Messiahs who die prove they're not messiahs. You're embarrassing yourself and us. Stop it. Have you ever wondered why Jesus is so harsh here? Why does he not just ignore Peter's rebuke? or Like, Peter, you just don't get it yet. Why does he literally turn around and rebuke Peter in a way that all the other disciples can hear it too, which is shaming Peter in the process? Why is Jesus so harsh? Just a little misunderstanding, go easy. Well, Peter's objections to the way of the cross, they do seem understandable and natural. Who would want that? Nobody chooses to be a loser. They're understandable and that is why they're so dangerous. Because Peter's not just misguided, he is speaking the very words that Satan the accuser would speak and did speak to Jesus in the wilderness. You can get the kingdom without the cross, We're on God's side. We want to win with God. The stakes are too high to risk losing. You don't need the cross. The way of glory, that's a lot better than the way of shame. Just go that way. Well, Jesus has heard this before, and he knows this is not the way. Get behind me, these are not the thoughts of God. Get behind me doesn't mean just get out of here. It means go in back of me, fall in line behind me. It's the same phrase that Jesus uses in verse 34, which our translation isn't isn't clear in our translation, but it's go behind me. Whoever wants to follow behind me must do this. Jesus is saying to Peter, you have got to follow where I lead, dude, not the other way around. And that's the essence of what Jesus says next. Follow your leader deny yourself. This is hard for us sometimes. We often hear it as just deny yourself of the things you want, give up chocolate and lent, that's denying yourself. Erase your needs and wants, focus on the needs and wants of others. Uh, women in particular are socialized to do this. It's worth noting, Jesus is talking to his men here. Deny yourself does not mean erase yourself. It means say no to yourself. It means you have these rights, you have the right to self-autonomy, you have these wants. Say no to that, put yourself under my authority instead. Follow where I lead. Deny yourself means place your ultimate loyalty not in yourself, in your own interests, but in Jesus, trusting that he will take care of the things that you need. Choose to make Jesus your leader. Well, that's all well and good, but where Jesus leads us is not exactly where we want to go all the time. It's not where Peter wanted to go. Peter wanted victory. He wanted to be on the winning side. It is hard for us to take in what a scandal the cross was in that setting and talking about the cross and why when Jesus brings it up, the disciples just kind of want to go like this It's not just the fact that it was a really painful way to die and state-sponsored torture. It was purposefully shaming, purposefully humiliating, carrying the beam of the cross without clothes on in front of a jeering mob who just wanted to hurl the shame at you. And Jews also believe that it meant the person crucified was cursed by God, cut off from God. So the cross really represents everything human beings fear the most. Pain, shame, humiliation, rejection, abandonment. Every core wound we carry. That's what gets triggered when we hear the cross. This is the scandal of walking the way. And the way of the cross is as much a scandal in our day as it was in Jesus' day. Many parts of the Church in our country right now seem captivated by the temptation to wield power or even violence in the name of God and His kingdom, to dominate, to destroy in the name of goodness. It's a perpetual temptation to fight for the kingdom with Satan's weapons. But this is not the way. If we do God's will, but not in God's way, it's not God's will at all. And Jesus is very clear. God's will, for him and for us, is the way of the cross. The way of the cross is a scandal. Many stumble over it. But it is also a promise. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake and the sake of the good news will save it. The way of the cross is not just masochistic or a way of unending suffering. The way of the cross is the way to life. The Greek word is suke. It's variously translated soul or life or self. I think in our passage, it's translated two different ways life and soul. It's the same word. It's a word that describes everything about you that makes you you, yourself, the essence of you, everything that makes us human. God does not want to cross you out, He wants to lead you to abundance of life, more humanity more joy, more peace, not less. The road to it goes through the cross. Jesus knows he's speaking to a group of pragmatists, pragmatist folks, these are not the theologians. This is the crowd, it's his disciples, it's people who made their living through business and farming. So Jesus talks about, he talks money, he talks business, he talks profits and losses and trades and gains. He says, if you trade away your precious self and gain the whole cosmos, you've lost. You're in the red. If you make that trade, good luck trading back because there's nothing you have that is worth enough to buy back your precious self. You got nothing. It reminds me of that story in the Old Testament when Esau trades his birthright to Jacob for a pot of stew. All he has left to try to buy it back is the stew. It's not equivalent. And he can't undo it. He gave away the only thing he had of equal value. It feels like we have everything to lose by walking the way of the cross. Status, honor, possessions, rights, that feels scary. But Jesus tells us we have everything to gain. And he knows from experience. He walked this path already. He's resurrected. He bears witness to us our suffering is not the end, that the way of the cross is the way of life, and there's no other way to life. It's not that you have a choice between, okay, life and no cross, or life and cross. No life, no cross, cross and life. One of my favorite places to go when I visit Arizona is a place I think I've mentioned in sermons before called the Box Canyons. There's this, its well, it's a creek, which sounds really small, but there's a section where this creek has carved a big canyon through the rocks, and there's a series of swimming holes. There's a hole and then a little waterfall and then a hole and then a waterfall. It's really, really great. There's a couple of parts early on that you can climb down to from the rocks without getting in the water, but you reach a point where if you want to keep going down the stream, You have to jump in. That's what it's like to follow Jesus. There's no way to follow where he's going that doesn't take you through the cross. No way to follow where you can't, where you can follow without jumping in. No way to death, no way to life except through death. No way to resurrection except through the cross. And it does take a leap of faith, because it feels scary. It feels scary to me. We, like Abraham, follow the way of the cross because of God's promise, being fully persuaded that God has power to do what he has promised. And the promise of the cross is that Jesus has taken that path and triumphed. He's won the victory on the path ahead. And when we, like Peter, stumble and fall, it's God's glory always to have mercy. There's only one path that leads to life— But Jesus, in his great mercy, is always seeking the sheep who stray. Bring them on back. Verse 38 is one of those verses that feels kind of harsh, doesn't it, and threatening. (laughs) If you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you when I return in victory with all the angels. Well, notice first that Jesus does return in victory. This is another promise in the cross. Being ashamed in this context means distancing oneself from. So if you distance yourself from me and the cross because you're ashamed, well, I'll distance myself from you when I return. If we can't accept his cross, we won't benefit from his glory. It is always tempting to distance ourselves from people or things that feel shameful. I remember when I was in high school, being very status conscious, as high schoolers were, at least in my day, no judgment on our current high schoolers. And I remember there were kids that were even less cool than I was. Yes, I mean that, (laughs) as in my own status. I remember even then feeling the challenge of Jesus. How are you treating those who aren't cool, who you might get made fun of if you're nice to them? Associate with them. Associate with those who aren't great, who don't make you look good, who aren't smart, who aren't capable, who are messy, who you wouldn't want to be seen with. Grown ups, this applies to us too. This too is the scandalous way. The cross is both scandal and promise. And if you want to follow Jesus, there's no other way because this is where he leads. He who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross. There is no other way. I'd like to draw out a a few practical implications for us, and there are many, many, many more. Since the way of Jesus is the way of the cross, we are always called to turn away from any version of Christianity that offers us kingdom without cross, glory without humility, I've already mentioned politics. We don't need to say it again. But I did notice that in the news this week, there's another politician vowing to give power back to Christians if they're elected. This is not the way. Bringing it closer to home, we're called to turn away from versions of Christianity that tempt us towards glory and triumph. And here I'm thinking, build a big church. Build a big program, have a big reach, have a big impact, do great things for God. Now, I love those stories, too. I have my own big hopes and dreams for us. But this is also an area of temptation for me and for us. I think, historically, we kind of placed our faith on our specialness sometimes. So it's been extra disillusioning to learn we're not as strong as we think we are. Maybe you feel ashamed right now to be here with those who are missing and our smaller numbers and our limitations. Maybe we want to be doing the sort of things the library's doing or the clinic or the school or neighboring churches. We want to be successful. This would feel good. And God does have good things for us to do. But success is not the same as faithfulness. Success is not the way. I think that our invitation right now here is not to like muster ourselves up and do great things, but to learn humility, to learn to embrace the way of the cross, to allow other organizations to lead. Like, we don't have to be the leaders. We can follow. This is the way. And since the way of Jesus is the way of the cross, we are called to turn towards people and communities who cannot bring us glory. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, be the servant of all. Now look around for a minute in our congregation. For real. Just look at our similarities and differences for a second. Most of us have the same skin color. Many of us have some higher status, certainly higher education, higher than average um, from our surroundings. As we think about future Redeemer, who do we envision joining us? Do we picture us in here or out there? Just thinking about this you know i i really want us to grow i don't think you can be a pastor and not want the church to grow right um and there's ways to do that that are not the waves of the cross i just, I just want to name that i don't know what to do with that other than to name it that for me too it's lord uh it's not about being spectacular it's about you working here And sometimes that means we have to die first. I know this is, I'm, yeah, anyway, I'm riffing. That's what it says in my notes. One reason that right now I want us to begin engaging in events in which we're more on an equal footing with those we serve, having a meal, being out in the community, uh, things that make us more equals. Because otherwise it will reinforce our status differences. And that's not the way of the cross. This is a temptation for us. And I have one very specific invitation, especially for those in the congregation who are of higher status or wealth or maturity or experience. And it's an invitation to begin to serve our kids and youth. Not because those ministries have needs, they do. But because you need that kind of spiritual formation. Our model with the kids and the youth is not to be crazy and entertaining. It is that we're learning together to follow Jesus here and now. Maybe you feel like, I got more to offer than that. Maybe you do. Maybe you wouldn't know where to start. Maybe you wouldn't. And that would be humbling, wouldn't it? This is the way. My very, very favorite Christian leadership book is by Omri Nawin called In the Name of Jesus. And Henri Nouwen, you might remember, left a life of renowned scholarship to serve at an institution called L'Arche, which is an institution, or was, I don't know if it's still around, caring for people with intellectual disabilities. Not glamorous. His scholarship before that time was good, but his later writings are profound. And he was ahead of his time when he wrote this. Christian leadership is not a leadership of power and control, but a leadership of powerlessness and humility in which the suffering servant of God, Jesus Christ, is made manifest. Powerlessness and humility in the spiritual life do not refer to people who have no spine and who let everyone else make decisions for them, They refer to people who are so deeply in love with Jesus that they're ready to follow Him wherever He guides them, always trusting that with Him, they will find life and find it abundantly. This is the way. Let us walk in it. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I offer these words. Amen.